0: Welcome to New Books in the Environment. I'm Jason Schwartz. John Newallum has made a career out of writing about animals and the strange lengths to which people constantly have to go to reconcile sharing a world with them. Sometimes it means spiking our window ledges to keep pigeons from landing there. Other times it means donning a lab. Welcome to New Books in the Environment. I'm Jason Schwartz. John Wallum has made a career out of writing about animals and the strange lengths to which people constantly have to go to reconcile sharing a world with them. Sometimes it means spiking our window ledges to keep pigeons from landing there. Other times, it means donning elaborate bird costumes to make endangered cranes comfortable enough so we can do for them what they can no longer remember how to do for themselves. In Wild Ones, a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America... Mualem takes us to three different places on the North American continent where human communities have developed deep connections with animals at the brink of extinction. What follows is a story of frustration, devotion, love, and ultimately hope. We are also taken on a ride into the arcane historic backroads of American conservation and asked to wonder about its present and future courses. I'm so pleased to welcome John Mualem to New Books on the Environment. Hey, John, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Jason? Good, thanks. Your book starts in Churchill, Manitoba, which is a town that's basically at the margins of human habitability. Um, And the people who live there live in the vestiges of a former military base. Um, Polar bears congregate there waiting for the Arctic ice to form. And so you have this strange cooperation or cohabitation of people and a large number of polar bears in this place. Um, And the kind of if it's not symbiosis, it's certainly a strange kind of mutuality has kind of developed between these two populations. Could you describe what life is like there a little bit?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, so basically Churchill's right on the on the western edge of Hudson Bay, so they're, they're, the bears have to come off the ice um, every, every summer. Uh, when the when the ice disappears, you know, melts away on the bay, and then they've got to wait around on land for the ice to form again in the fall. And so, really, you know, you you put it exactly the right way. Like this is this is the one place on Earth where large numbers of polar bears are all congregated in the same place. Um, at the same time of year and it also happens to be where there's this you know little town with an airport and a you know a railway station um, and a hotel and all you know all the kind of the, the, the what you need for for human um, habitability and so and so what that means is that is that essentially that the, the bears can be monetized right because um, you can you can go you can plan a trip to see polar bears in Churchill and you, it's really hard to do that anywhere else in the world I mean otherwise you're just sort of Mounting these expeditions into these, you know, vast white wildernesses, and hoping that you might cross paths with a bear, or you might see one on the ice from the the bow of a cruise ship or something. Um, and so, what happened basically after the military pulled out of Churchill in the in the late sixties? Um, is that, you know, now that the the fort there was was dismantled and, you know, the town went from about 7,000 people to about, you know, 1,000 people or even less, um, you know, within a matter of months, basically. Uh, The wilderness started, you know, creeping back in and the bears that had previously steered away from the town now, you know, felt much more comfortable just walking straight through the town or digging in dumpsters and things like that. Um, And people realized that, you know, just as the military... um, their their kind of economic reason for being with the military had disappeared. They could revive the town as a tourist destination, and so now every fall you've got about you know ten thousand tourists that filter through the town to get a look at the bears, and you've got a lot of media too because obviously if you're filming some sort of nature special or something, you you want to make sure you've got a good chance of filming polar bears if you're going to invest all that money. And so uh, Churchill has really become this this nexus point where um, people and and bears, um, you know, you know where the bears are going to be, and therefore. The people can go right to them, and so you've got these kind of weird transactions, I guess, between uh, between people and bears going on all fall. At first,
0: it wasn't it wasn't so, so much about people trying to get the, this last chance at, at seeing a bear. It was about something else about fear and, and danger. Um, how how has the transformation sort of been been managed by people outside of Churchill, and how has it been managed by people who actually live there and, and live near the bears?
1: Yeah, right. So, so yeah, in the, in the early 80s, which is about when the first tourists started coming to Churchill, um, the appeal was really, you know, that everyone thought of polar bears as these, you know, really bloodthirsty, menacing creatures. And, you know, wouldn't, isn't it cool that you get to go somewhere where you can see one of these things in real life because, you know, they're so mysterious and they live in these solitary lives up at the top of the world. And actually, there was a National Geographic special called Polar Bear Alert that came out in the 80s, which pretty much uh, jump-started the tourist industry there where they, they filmed the town and they showed, you know, men walking around with, you know, their babies and a rifle over their shoulder because <laughs> – this was a place that was, you know, being, uh, yeah, you know, the, the birds were sort of, you know, these phantoms that roamed around the, the town. And there, that was the tone. The tone was of danger and kind of the allure of the danger of being so close to polar bears. And then in the mid 2000s, when, when climate change really started to peak in the, in public consciousness and the polar bear became this kind of icon for climate change, a lot of the tourism now has, has, uh, flipped into what, uh, you know, one, one academic, um, uh, paper I saw it called last chance tourism where basically people are coming to see these bears before they disappear because the bears around Hudson Bay are probably going to be the first population to, to go as well. Um, and, and that's, that's been really, um, you know, good for the the tourism industry and that's been really good for the NGOs that are working up there um, to kind of put the spotlight on Churchill and on the polar bears that way. But I think it's – you know, basically what I was surprised to see is, is just how confusing and even infuriating it's been for people who live in the town because these are – you know, nearly everyone I met in town who, who – you know, resident of Churchill – does not believe climate change is is a real thing. I mean they see changes in the climate. But they tend to think that it 's a cyclical thing or you know or they just don 't buy the idea that even if the climate changes that polar bears are just going to starve on land and that they 're not going to figure out some other way to survive and I think you know as far as I could understand it, it really seemed to be um, because these people lived around polar bears. They lived in actual proximity to polar bears and that they had real one to one experiences with bears over the years. And they knew these animals to be, you know, very intelligent, very kind of creative animals that they had to respect as neighbors. And so the bear that they knew was not the same bear that you see. You know, in these commercials for, you know, like, uh, you know, when you see the, the image of the poor bear on, on a stra- stranded on an ice floe or something just sort of looking forlorn and helpless, um, that that is not the same bear that, that they know. Um, and I think they really have become uh, resentful of the environmentalists and all the celebrities and TV news crews that, you know, come through town every year because they see them as uh, cheapening this animal, you know, using this animal to forward some kind of environmental agenda and really, not honoring, um, you know, what the animal that, that that they know it to be. For for whose sake are we keeping these bears?
0: I mean, for, for for what reason would we keep these around as keepsakes?
1: Yeah, well, well, I mean, I should clarify. I mean, that that was my my term. Right. Uh, you know, no, no conservationist talked about it that way. Uh- but, but I talked about it that way because really you know i that I felt like that's what we were talking about at this point um and I think it it brings up you know a whole host of different you know issues as as you're as you're mentioning um but but the idea that um, so so i think well I think it's important to go back a little bit so so basically the you know, the polar bear became this this icon of climate change because it, it it was one of the first species where we had very clear science about how climate change was going to affect a species and how exactly it was going to drive a certain species extinct. Um, you know, there, there had obviously been a lot of science about climate change, but in terms of these very narrow studies about its effects on a particular species, <clears throat> excuse me, the polar bear was really the first, you know, and definitely the first kind of charismatic megafauna species that we had that information for. And so... The idea became if you could get people to care about the polar bear, you could get people to, you know, care about combating climate change, and you could use it as a as a kind of mascot to rally people behind. And I think what you're seeing now is that, um, you know, even in the last ten years or so, since this this idea, this kind of synergy between polar bear uh, conservation and climate change activism, um, happened, the the time has run out for a lot of polar bear populations, or at least we've we've now understand the situation better, and the consensus is that that time is is very close to running out for almost all of them, except for these ones at the very top of the world, um, and so so you you start to see the the tactics. Um, you know, forking now uh, into, you know, what can save polar bears and what can stop climate change. And if we're still just talking about saving polar bears by, um, you know, revamping energy policy or carbon taxes or whatever it is going to be in a, in a kind of holistic way to combat climate change, then even if those changes were to start happening really dramatically, you know, this afternoon, we would still really only be able to save a very small number of polar bears. Um, And, and so and, and I think not to say that's not worthwhile. I'm just sort of laying out, you know, realistically what we're, what we're talking about. Whereas you get all these other people and a lot of the people, for example, that I met in Churchill, um, who say, well, if we want to save polar bears, we should be, you know, putting food out for them. Um, cause that's what they need, right? They're, they're off ice. Um, uh, they're not eating while they're, while they're stranded on land. Um, and so really, but by, by the time I got to Churchill, the, the ideas of, or, or the practice of saving polar bears and fighting climate change, had in many cases become two separate um, things, and and so I think that the idea that you were you're going to save, um, you know, you're going to combat climate change to save one population of polar bears up at the very north of the world, I think that's an honorable thing, and I would much rather live in a world with one population of polar bears than no population of polar bears, but I think that. Um, You know, to say that, you know, to save... Uh, to to fix the climate is to save polar bears is is just almost the ridiculously disingenuous statement at this point, right? Um, And and it's also like it's 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 not the best reason to fight climate change is to save you know a small pocket of polar bears (laughs) close to the North Pole. There's there's much more compelling reasons um to to fight climate change and there's and I honestly think at this point too there's there's much you know since we've had you know Sandy and you know kind of other weather events um. that people are starting to internalize as as you know caused by climate change, there's even more um, compelling reasons I think that you could rally people behind um, than than polar bears. And I think you see that you you don't see environmentalists really talking about polar bears th- to the same extent. No,
0: in- it it, you know, it almost it's, seems like they're 15 minutes or like it's at 14:45, doesn't it? With the polar
1: bears. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And and you know, when I was in Churchill, it was like you could really see that that was at the, and that's what I write about. To, you know, for the most extent, is sort of how how the polar bear was on the verge of jumping the shark. You know. Yeah. Um, you really start to see it and i think it's because you know it it because of what i'm talking about because it, the reality of the situation and all of its complexities was starting to be of the polar bear situation was was starting to you know really come into relief and once you see um, the complexities of actually, you know, of preserving a species like the polar bear, you realize that it's not really a tidy symbol for this other larger problem.
0: Well, I mean, and I think that, that some groups and some people might even think of protecting the polar bear as as goal one, and climate change as a means for seeking protection for for the polar bear. I mean, you, you take, you know, uh, Center for Biodiversity, which has traditionally used the, envi- um, the Endangered Species Act to, um, you know, to get the United States to um, keep to its promises of of protecting species and ecosystems and they've been they've their tack has been as you outline in your book, their tack has been to try to get to try to get protection for the polar bear through climate change. Could you describe a little bit about their use of Endangered Species Act and maybe a little bit about the strangeness of that act and sort of everybody 's surprise that it's it 's still going?
1: yeah so so yeah i tell this story in the book because i was really curious to see well you know how did the so i should say also you know when i was like just shopping the book proposal around editors in New York, um, you know, one editor actually like suggested, well, maybe you don't want to write about polar bears because they're kind of overexposed yeah. now, you know. And I thought that like that's that's exactly why I want to write about polar bears, you know. How does a how does an endangered species like how does an animal that lives where no no people live become overexposed, <laughs> right? Um, and so I wanted to tell that story. I wanted to sort of piece together how this had all happened, and and it largely had to do with um, the Center for Biological Diversity in 2000 Two thousand five I believe I may have that it may have been two thousand six no, I think it was two thousand and five had filed a um, <clears throat> petition to list the bear under the endangered species act and this was really in the book um, you know both in my Learning about this and also in the way I, I lay it out in the book, this was how I got to know about the ins and outs of the Endangered Species Act and sur, sur, some of the surprising idiosyncrasies of the law. But basically they, they were really just looking to confront the Bush administration with um, climate science. You know, this was at a time when, when even, you know, getting in a legal context, getting the government to concede that you know, carbon emissions caused climate change was very difficult. And so, you know, there was, there was efforts to do it using the Clean Air Act and all sorts of other different legal um, devices. And then um, Cassie Siegel and Brendan Cummings, these two attorneys at the, at the Center for Biological Diversity, had these really kind of brilliant ideas that, well, you know, we can use the Endangered Species Act to do it because when you petition for a species to be listed, the government has to look at the, quote, best available science to assess how, you know, how serious the threat to that species is. And if we could find an animal that's going to be driven extinct by climate change, we will force them to assess and rule on this on that science um, in the context of the Dangerous Species Act. And they'd actually tried other species before the polar bear. So they, they had the strategy, and then they were looking for the right animal to plug into it. Yeah,
0: they, uh, the, they, they pro- tried some, some Kitlitz murlit, and maybe The a kitlet's spider, is <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. They had the Glacier Bay wolf spider at first yeah. and yeah. Had the, the seabird called the Kitlitz murrelit. Yeah. And, uh, and the problem was is that the administration the, administration was able to basically duck, you know, they kind of wiggled out of this trap that Cassie and Brennan were, were setting for them by calling these animals, uh, these species uh, warranted but precluded, which is this weird loophole that I had no idea about, which basically just means that you can sh- you can say, yes, this species is, is under threat, it's going to go extinct, and we should be offering it protection under the Endangered Species Act, but we're just a little bit too busy right now. <laughs> so we're going to kind of shove it through this loophole into this waiting room of species uh, called the candidate list, and we'll we can just leave it there indefinitely and and then you know ever since the clinton administration people have had been uh, present you know presidential administrations have been doing this to uh to species so that there's just been this huge backlog piling up and that was what happened with the kitlets is but when they did the polar bear they were able to um you know sort of this like interesting kind of chess game right because when you have the polar bear then you can uh kind of neuter there, uh, the way they've neutered your strategy. Um, and, uh, and so if they're going to put something on the candidate list, you get the most charismatic, cuddly, Awesome thing you can think of so that people, the, the public will actually care. And so that if they put that on the candidate list and say, well, we're not going to really bother protecting the polar bear right now. Yeah. You, know, you know, there would actually be public, um, concern about that. And so it becomes politically impossible. And so that was why the polar bear worked. It's, it's you know, all this kind of gushing that was happening in the media and, and the public and all these kids who were writing letters to the Bush administration with drawings of polar bears drowning and, um, you know, people coming dressed like polar bears to, hearings, wearing life preservers and stuff, all this stuff actually mattered, um, you know, in the legal context because it really boxed the Bush administration in. And so, um, I mean, I can go on because actually then the Bush administration kind of had this other kind of maneuver where they were able to kind of thwart Cassie and Brendan again. But in terms of clearing that first hurdle, um, that was, you know, what I was really surprised to learn that what had looked like a kind of superficial pop, you know, culture craziness for polar bears was actually very valuable legal <laughs> Um, assets um,
0: only valuable because of the structure of the Environmental Species Act, which permitted all this all this activity.
1: Exactly. I mean, but that you know, you, I think you you realize that when you're when you're uh, look at any law, basically that you know the the letter of the law and the the idealism behind a particular law spells out that things should happen a certain way, and then um, it's basically just kind of like a you know a pile on of, of attorneys on either side that that will figure out how they're going to either get around the get around that law or hold the government to the, to the letter of the law.
0: Well, speaking of, um, pylons of attorneys and embattled bears in our home state of New Jersey, there is, we're entering, I don't know, it's the third or something year of, uh, the state sanctioned bear calling, uh, which is the state's terminology. I think it's a, you know, it's a yearly state sanctioned bear hunt based on the premise that human and bear conflict is happening too much. Um, and, a term that you often see used by people who justify uh, this hunt, which is, you know, obviously um, providing diminishing returns over time. I mean, hunters are giving up now because these, because uh, so-called nuisance bears are harder and harder and harder to find. Go figure. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the terms that you often see to justify this hunt is cultural carrying capacity. And that's always seemed a bit of a dubious term to me, a term that it's sort of meant to signify how much of a species, um, human civilization can, can, can tolerate nearby, um, or just tolerate in general. Um, it's always seemed like a way, a means of justifying something like a bear calling, but in your book, you kind of take a more holistic, uh, uh, Position on the term. Um, how do you take cultural caring capacity, and, and what do you think of as, as its significance in this conversation?
1: Yeah, I actually think it's a brilliant term. Um, you know, it was there were there were uh, several moments in you know when I was re- reporting the book where I would hit on a hit on a term like this, you know, that just suddenly explained so much to me. You know, so many of the things I'd been seeing. Now I had a way to to think about them, um, and I, this was definitely one of them. And and I, I think it's you know, I would, I would completely disagree with you. I mean, I think it's, it's not dubious at all. I think actually it's, it's, it's the one thing that, that matters, um, <laughs> uh, right now in, in terms of, you know, what species are going to stick around on the planet or not is basically how much we want to tolerate them. And, uh, and, you know, usually you, you see it applied to, uh, things like deer or wild turkeys or, you know, bears in some cases, you know, things that we actually have. We live in proximity to, and we have close contact with um, you know you, how many deer are we going to have well we 're going to have as many deer as we're going to have before they really start pissing people off <laughs> or until you know like Lyme disease spikes um, you know and or we 're going to have as many bears as, as we 're going to have until they start turning up you know on kids trampolines and backyards um, so but I, but I also think there's a broader way to think about it, and it gets back to this endangered species act stuff, which is that, you know, even animals like the kittlitz's muralit, which you know there are really a hand, only a handful of people in the world who have even seen this bird, and virtually all of them are biologists who study the bird. You know, it lives like on these glacial ice sheets. Um, you know, even even an animal like that did not get endangered species act protection, did not get money and you know federal employees and energy. Uh, and, and more science devoted to it because uh, we didn't care about it, you know, because we didn't care, because no one cared about it enough to to put pressure on the Bush administration when it decided it was going to put it in this warranted but precluded category. And I'd say that's just another dimension of sort of cultural carrying capacity that we're making decisions about what lives and dies and, you know, and how and what we want where all the time, Um, you know, not just for these animals like raccoons or something that we would, we would, you know, actually see in our neighborhoods.
0: Yeah. I mean, in in that way, conservation, um, conservation of species has so much to do with, with, a world that we can imagine living in a world that we want to structure. And, and it's, I think one of the reasons that the term has always seemed dubious to me is, it is a reaction to, to that, to that instinct, but maybe a reaction to that kind of instinct is, is, or a negative reaction to that kind of instinct is is naive. At this point in time, there is something there is some truth to the notion that we are determining. <laughs> I mean, if it's not if it's not already obvious that we're in the so-called six sixth extinction and, and climate change is very much a reality that, that that we are structuring the world that we as we want to see it. And in many ways the animals that get to stay around are the ones that are either able to make us like them or adapt to the world that we're structuring.
1: Yeah. Well, and I also think it's not, it's not always intentional. You know, we're doing tons of things by accident, but we're still the ones doing them. And even, you know, some of, there's, you know, a moment in the book too, where I'm talking about, you know, success, conservation success. And then, you know, like black bears, I mean, that, the fact that they're being, they're nuisances now is in some measure, a success of conservation. Um, With gigantic quotation marks around the term nuisance, of course. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, but well, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just more cynical than you. But <laughs> I would consider it a nuisance if there's, you know, uh, you know. It, I mean, maybe not for the amount of bears that are in New Jersey, but you know, if I was having, you know, multiple black bears walk through my backyard and I have a toddler at yeah, home, sure, I would, yeah, I would consider that a nuisance. You know, that to me seems legitimate. But but in any case, but I think that you know you see it a lot with species where where they do rebound. You know, where all our hard work pays off, and then suddenly it's like we're well, we're not quite sure why did we want these things around you know you see this with you know farmers who are having their chops crampled by by various birds and is it that there's always this kind of tension between um you know uh uh you know kind of romanticizing certain elements and wanting to make sure that they stick around and then also um not always being sure how to how to actually coexist with them
0: is there some deeper bridge between the way that children view animals in the way that we mean for our children to view animals in their early days and our instincts or some people's instincts for conservation
1: yeah i mean there's so many different ways to answer that question and and i think you know just maybe the most straightforward way that i've come to understand it is you know the fact that we surround kids with animals the fact that you know, we read them stories about animals and show them movies about animals and that if we're outside, you know, we, and, and they say, look, a butterfly, like, you know, that's like a kind of gives you a warm feeling, you know? (laughs) Um, I mean, I think all this to me in a very fundamental way just is proof that being a, a species that lives among other species is really important to us. And that, and that on some basic level, uh, the fact that we are trying to Get our kids plugged into the world of, of wildlife means that it's important to us. In the same way that, you know, we teach kids the golden rule or we teach kids to share, um, you know, these sort of very basic fundamental values that, you know, in adult life, are always more complicated than they seem for a four-year-old. Um, the, you know, animals is, is one of them to, to just to be interested in animals, to be aware of animals seems to be something that we're, we're all teaching our, our kids. And so to me, that's the most, that's like the most hardcore, uh, you know, simplest way to interpret all this. Um, and, and I think that was really eye-opening for me, uh, because when you, when you talk to, um, I mean, even when I would describe the book to people, and I'd say, "Well, yeah, I'm going to take my daughter to see endangered species in the wild," like you know, people would would you could see like you know, uh they, they would they would respond to that in an emotional way, just like that one sentence, you know, mm-hmm. um, it was very evocative for them. And I think it just it you know, like all, all things that we we talk about children with, it's it's just kind of a window into what our our kind of deepest values are. Um, You know, we don't we don't talk to our kids about like hedge funds and you know, try to get them to understand, you know, finance or politics so much, you know, but we do, we do do that with, with nature.
0: Well, I mean, there's a, there's a certain, so your book, you know, it's called The Wild Ones, a sometimes dismaying, weirdly reassuring story about looking at people, looking at animals in America. And despite the quirkiness and I think perfectness of the subtitle, it's actually the, the major title, the, whatever that, Publishing word is wild, wild. <laughs> the title, the <laughs> wild ones. That is so melancholy to me. It's it, there's a there's a hint there of, like, envy and sort of missingness. You know, um, wild ones. Those ones. The ones over there. The ones that um, get to still be wild. Um, and it's that kind of melancholy that I think infuses the book and actually infuses the actions of many of the conservationists who are, who are working in your book who are basically giving over their lives or major parts of their lives and um, their in their best years um, in the service of conserving species that are that would not survive um, without their without their help, um, and, and that's a great place to, to transition to talking about the butterflies, because you go from this very charismatic species, the polar bear, um, which you know uh, everybody is overseeing at this point, to a obscure butterfly living in a very obscure post industrial sort of wasteland. And, um, it's called the Lang's metal mark butterfly. Can you describe just briefly what is happening there to preserve this this little insect?
1: Yeah, so so this is a butterfly that lives on a, <clears throat> a little piece of land, which is actually a national wildlife refuge now called the Antioch Dunes National Wildlife Refuge, and it's situated in this town of Antioch, right between San Francisco and Sacramento. On the on one side of the, ref, the refuge is only about sixty acres, I guess, so it's one of the smallest national wildlife refuges in, in the U.S. Um, it's it's there's a river on one side and a waste treatment. Uh, facility on the other side, and uh, there's a railroad tracks and a little biker bar. Um, it's it's not you know it's not what you think of when you think of a wildlife refuge. And basically, for a hundred years, ever since the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, uh, the sand had been mined out of it. They were first started mining it to to make bricks to rebuild the city, and then it was used for you know a whole host of things uh, since then. And so the ecosystem just completely unraveled. Um, you, know, you had a disturbance ecosystem, these sand dunes that now there were no dunes. Weeds were invasive plants were were coming in, Um, and and just you know the the plants that the butterfly relied on were having a hard time uh, competing, but somehow this butterfly managed to to hang on long enough to get people's attention, and it was one of the first insects ever listed as an endangered species in the in the early or late seventies, I guess, and uh, by the early eighties, the government had bought the property, and what you know went about trying to. To protect the butterfly, um, you know, basically, fast forward to, to now, and you've got. Uh, an ecosystem that's that's completely being run by people. You know, the machinery of that ecosystem is just ground to a halt, and so you've got a full time Fish and Wildlife Service employee who is essentially just walking around the property, pull, pulling uh, you know invasive plants out and planting these uh, native buckwheat that the butterfly needs. Uh, you've got uh, a biologist in uh, Southern California who's breeding the, the butterflies in captivity and then driving up with larvae every spring and walking. Around the property, uh, placing the larvae on on the leaves of the buckwheat, as though she were like a female butterfly laying eggs around the refuge. Um, you know, as, as some, they're very open about the fact that it's just you know we're we're doing everything for this place at this point. It's never there's really no scenario where you can imagine this ecosystem um, just kind of you know starting up again um, and and running on its own.
0: So. Uh- both the survival of, of this butterfly in this very small little fingernail of a, of a, of a place and the survival of the ecosystem that would preserve it a reliance upon conservation. And, and that's actually a term that I'd, I'd never heard before conservation reliance. And, um, it's a term that, uh, it's a theme that, that, that pretty much infuses the book that, that there is a, that there is now in many places in the world, um, uh, a form of wildlife that is utterly dependent upon very direct human maintenance of their, of many of their natural behaviors just so that they can, they can survive. Um, That's, that's very interesting. And that's a very interesting part of the book, but, but sort of equally interesting and quiet, more quiet in the book is, is a, is your discussion of a different kind of species, species unto itself. It's it's that conservationist species, the, the devotee, um, the diehard who goes to extreme lengths to keep these conservation-reliant species like the metal mark or the whooping crane around. Um, and it got me to thinking about another kind of reverse direction of conservation-reliance. Um, does conservation-reliance somehow um, illuminate as a term um the relationship that, that some of these conservationists have to the upkeep of the,
1: of, of, of their spe of their particular species. So, it like, is it a codependent relationship? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, I would, I would say absolutely yes, but I, I worry that that right. somehow cheapens it, you know? And I think that, I mean, to me it's, it's, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, this getting to know the people doing these projects and, and actually spending, you know, huge amounts of time with them um, was, to me, just the real pleasure of, of doing this book. I mean, the, the ideas are, are nice. You know, it's interesting in an intellectual way to learn about kind of the the planet we're living on right now. Um, But, but it wouldn't have held my interest for three years writing the book if it weren't, you know, that, that all those ideas were being animated by, by these real people who often were not who I expected them to be. I mean, there's very few scientists in the book. You know, most of, most of the people I ended up spending time with are, are, you know, kind of very extremely well regarded and educated amateurs, you know, yeah. who who uh got into their particular project in in a kind of a sideways way and, yeah. and are often really surprised at how their life has turned out.
0: Yeah, you have you have people coming there who are you know who are who are just residents who live near nearby places, or people who are coming there to sort of escape another form of life, or to, or to just further um, relationships with people, and found themselves deeply uh, involved with with animals, and and that's it's the kind of myriad ways that people get involved in and then end up staying. That I agree. It's it's. I mean, you say it's a uh, um the, the kind of major experience if you're writing the book, but it's it's definitely the major experience of reading the book is is developing relationships and, and you go into pretty good depth um with a lot of the people who you meet and and it is kind of incredible that they're that they're that they began as amateurs and in their experience in this very small niche in a various with a very particular species had become the foremost experts in the world in the conservation of, of their relative species um, <clears throat> um what is shifting baseline syndrome? That, that's something that, also, that I hadn't really come across all that much either. Well, can you describe what that
1: is? Yeah, so this was something that I discovered in the context of, of anti students. It was another case where I was, you know, learning about a, a particular place or a particular person and then it turns out there's a scientific concept that's a, that explains it perfectly. Um you know, basically I was, so, so I, I had gotten to know this, this, um, entomologist named Jerry Powell at Berkeley who is, um, I think in his, in his mid-seventies now. And he, he was one of the first, or, or one of the people that, that who's still around who had been to the, to Antioch dunes the, the long, you know, the furthest back in history. So he, he had gone for the first time, I think, in the early fifties. Um, and really back then, this little, you know, horrible scrap of land that we see now was really a wonderland for entomologists. There were all these different insect communities. There was a full spread in Life magazine about all the different insects that lived there and what, what an amazing place this was and how unique. And, uh, and Dr. Powell had basically seen this place destroyed over the course of his life and had been st- trying to study that decline. And he uh, did a really interesting study where he tried to chart, you know, looking at museum specimens that had been collected there over the years, he tried to chart when different species disappeared from the dunes, when no one could go there and collect them anymore. Um, and what he found actually was the opposite. He found that um, the biodiversity was, in- was increasing. Um, because, or it appeared to be increasing because he kept seeing as, as the years went on, more and more different kinds of species being collected rather than fewer species. And he, 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 he was able to explain this because he had an epiphany and he realized he thought about, um, entomologist nets and that the way, um, over the years, the holes in the netting had gotten smaller and smaller so that you could trap smaller insects and that people's attention had turned to smaller insects. So the first people that went to Antioch Dunes, um, you know, uh, looked at, uh, ca- you know, caught all the big sexy stuff. And then that was, that sort of declined. And then the next generation came along and looked for smaller insects and to the point where he was like burrowing around in the dirt and trapping nocturnal stuff. Um, and so this this opened into this idea of shifting baselines, so which basically just means that um, you know, every generation uh accepts the, the version of 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 the world as normal in a sense. I mean it's in in a narrow sense it's like their data is pegged to their the beginning of their career and they can measure declines against that that baseline but then the next generation comes along and they make their baseline the beginning of their career or ie the end of the previous generations career so that each generation is only getting a little narrow portion of the line graph um, in front of them and it's hard to really zoom out and see those changes that are happening over the generation so for example when Jerry Powell first went to the Antioch Dunes, the people in the generation older than him already thought the place was was destroyed. They had lost interest in it as a study site. Whereas he thought it was still this amazing place full of all these fascinating insects. And of course by this time he's given up on the place. I mean he decades ago he thought it was ruined. But there's a new generation of entomologists that is still out there trying to preserve what's what's there. So it's it's kind of a I don't really know what to do with that idea, to be honest. On the one hand it's very reassuring that every generation seems to have this capacity to find Beauty and, and be fascinated by whatever's left. <laughs> On the other hand, it's it's sort of terrifying because the empirically the damage is just stacking up in the background, whether we notice it or not.
0: In, in discussing the butterfly, you say that species taxonomy actually complicates conservation or it makes
1: it difficult. Um, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So well, so the Endangered Species Act, it's um, you know you you the things that are being protected are species. Um, you know, that term is used broadly to mean both species and subspecies, but, but, you know, you can't, you can't say I want endangered species protection for you know some butterflies that live on this land. You have to have an actual, you know, taxonomic designation. You have to say it's it's this particular species. Here's how it's defined, and here's what separates it from other species. And and that's obviously very reasonable because this is a law, um, and it and you know it needs to be applied to a, a very well defined set of of organisms. The problem is, um, and and I think there's a there's a um, legal scholar at Berkeley named Holly Doremus who who has just written so brilliantly about this, and basically everything I know about this is is rooted in in her in her work but what you have now is is you have a, a law with it's very you know it's insistence to be very left-brained about everything and 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 define everything very narrowly and and in an iron ironclad way Rubbing up against nature, which is not often defined in a very narrow ironclad way and, and actually species many in, in the case of many species there 's this kind of blur of variability that taxonomist 's job is to go in and carve up into tidy categories and so there 's been all kinds of arguments over the years. Um, you know, especially people who want to challenge the protected status of a species, be it because they want to build somewhere or you know some kind of development thing or water rights thing, whatever it is, um, have tried to undermine protection for species by showing that that particular species is not really unique. Um, so you know, there's this, been this long-running case in Colorado about the uh, Prebles uh, jumping mouse. It's called it's a little field mouse, and there's been all sorts of arguments about you know, well, is this field mouse that's in you know in this part of Colorado really so different from this other one that I think maybe in Kansas or, or somewhere like that, um, and trying to kind of, you know, just chip away at these lines that we've drawn between species and show the fungibility there. Um, and it, it, is, it is problematic. I mean, I think in the, in the case of the Lang's Metal Mark, um, I discovered that there are actually butterflies that are almost the genetic equivalent of these butterflies that live on Mount Diablo, um, you know, just in, a, in a neighboring county um, that aren't at the Antioch Dunes. And they don't, happen, they don't look like the Lyons' metal marks. So in, in, for a taxonomist, they're a different species because we define butterfly species by their physical appearance. On the other hand, there are butterflies that look exactly like Lyons' metal marks, um, and they're much further down uh, the, the state so- south of Antioch Dunes, and they're not genetically related uh, to this you know, hardly at all you know, in, in, compared to these other butterflies. Um, so when you look for an empirical kind of rational answer, to what is the species we're protecting? Um, it's it's really hard to do. So, what are people protecting? Well, that's a good question. So, I think you know you can make you know I, I guess in the end I didn't really I didn't really know what the best way to answer that is, and and so you could say we're protecting the the, the genes of this butterfly, um, but in fact we're we're not because even you know I had entomologists tell me. Uh, or lepidopters tell me that that theoretically you could go to Mount Diablo, take these butterflies, and just sort of selectively breed them almost like they were like, you know, AKC dogs, right. peer print dogs, and and create Lang's metal mark butterflies again. Um so so you can't really say we're protecting the genetics. You can't really say we're protecting the appearance because we have butterflies that look just like it. You could say we're protecting a butterfly, this this particular butterfly that lives in this particular place. Um, and I think that's a that's a good one, except that the place where they lived is now completely changed from what it, what it used to be. Um, and I, th- and I think in the end, you know, what I feel like is, is, uh, and the, this is the way that Jana Johnson, who's the woman who's breeding the butterflies in captivity, explained it to me, is that we're protecting something unique. Um, we're, and, and we're protecting, uh, the idea that there is a butterfly that lives on this land in Antioch and that the, that, that arrangement of butterfly and landscape does not exist anywhere else. Um, and she compared it almost to like, you know, restaurants, like you don't want every restaurant on the highway to be an Applebee's. You know, you want some mom and pops, um, And I think that there is value to that. You know, I think that there is value to celebrating what is, um, specific to a particular place, even if the place is completely different than it, than it once was. Um, can I make an argument that protecting this butterfly is more important than protecting, you know, some other species? Not really. Can I make an argument that protecting this butterfly is more important than building a power plant down the road, which they're trying to do? Um, to be honest, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how I feel about that. Um, there are very good reasons to build a, to build a power plant. Our plant there, you know, um, so, so maybe this is a case where we just want to let it go. But I do celebrate the idea that there are people who think that this is a beautiful thing that exists in one place and therefore it's worth saving because I think frankly, we need, we need more energy like that. Otherwise we will lose all those unique things.
0: Yeah. I mean that, the kind of creativity or, or even just the, the faith that, that, that relationship to that animal and to that place means something is, I mean, a uh, uh, though very nuanced and complex way of expressing the importance of something. Um, you know, uh, it's it's a real conviction. It's it's a conviction that 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 um, I think probably is bolstered by people going out into out into the wild and. and if if we can use the word wild, um, go out into the wild and seeing those animals perform there as they would normally perform, it it's it that behavior means something. I mean, whether or not that in the kind of system evaluation that that the meaning of that behavior um, equates to the meaning of a power plant, that's another question. But it but to say that it doesn't mean something is. Um, Understandably viewable i think as as an impoverishment um
1: and yeah, and I think that the, it's it's a sort of unfortunate that we end up talking about these things in 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 the specific because it's very hard i think to make you know a a completely um irrefutable argument for the preservation of any one species right um but but i think that you know there's a larger principle um that that you know it's worth i'm very glad there are people who are who are really making that argument for all these species because some of them are going to (laughs) prevail um and and i guess you know for me you know not not to oversimplify but in the general it's most important i think that some of them prevail (laughs) rather than that any one particular one uh does
0: what the human what does the human crane hybrid yeah. look like to you what is what is that creature
1: yeah well so here's a here's a case you know um going from from the butterfly to the whooping crane where you really see um you know what what prolonged human involvement on the order of what's happening with the butterfly looks like. After you know ninety years, basically, um, or, or eighty years, I guess, I mean, there were four, fourteen to sixteen wild whooping cranes left in, in the late nineteen thirties, and ever since then, um, you know, people and whooping cranes have just been, you know, increasingly more entangled in all sorts of bizarre and very intimate ways, um, and, and and in some ways, it's very affirming because you see that what you know the, the the whooping crane looked as hopeless and as desperate and sort of as absurd as the butterfly can look now in the nineteen thirties and now it it actually looks a lot better uh you know in the sense that there are more there are many more whooping cranes there's 30, you know about 300 whooping cranes in the population that once had 16 and now they're starting to get this other population up and running in the eastern part of the country so that's a that's a huge success in some ways and and something that would have been you know unimaginable i mean i can't imagine a scenario like that happening with the butterfly and yet here you know basically this tells me that it that it's possible uh, given enough time and enough ingenuity on the other hand it's still very desperate um it's still you know sort of on the knife edge of of extinction um and the, and the trouble that they're having in getting this new population going in the eastern U.S., it just shows you how complicated it can be where you basically have birds being raised in captivity by people in white costumes so that the birds don't imprint on the people and, and uh, think that they're people and become sexually attracted to people instead of birds. Which has happened before. Which has happened before, yes. And, uh, and then you've got the uh, people, these guys in, in a nonprofit called Operation Migration who lead the birds on a, on a migration from Wisconsin to Florida in ultralight airplanes, Still wearing the costumes, not talking around the birds, so that the birds who would normally learn migration from their parents uh, can learn how to migrate because their parents are still back in the lab in Maryland, and they've been plopped down at this refuge in Wisconsin without any any kind of guides. Um, so, so, uh, so this is the um, this is the hybrid creature, um, I guess. Is that it's it's a it's a very much a cooperative effort between birds and and people to teach these birds what they need to know. Um, on the other hand, the, the vision, you know, this was undertaken with the idea that uh, the, this would all be phased out eventually, that once there were enough birds who had learned to migrate and had grown to maturity and were breeding themselves, that people wouldn't be necessary anymore. And that's actually taken a lot longer than anyone thought, partly because the birds are having trouble breeding. They abandon their nests at the refuge. And there's a few theories why, um, it seems likely that it's it's a problem with a black fly infestation, that the, the birds are just kind of being um, harassed by these flies. Um, but th- there is a possibility that it's also, you know, somehow there's a glitch in these birds, you know, programming, I guess, to use a computer metaphor, which is sort of <laughs> offensive, but um, that, <laughs> That's that about- somehow raises... <laughs> Yeah. Raising these cyborg whooping cranes <laughs> so, uh, so that raising, you know, whooping cranes in white costumes somehow doesn't teach them what they need to know to be good parents. Um, and as far as I know, that's still an open debate, although the black fly thing is, is, uh, it seems like it's picking up more credibility, but, um, I haven't checked in with it lately. I mean, um, yeah. So go, go ahead. No. no I, so I was just gonna say. So that's So for the time being, you know, we're still living in this. Um, you know, it's a very conservation reliant sort of system where, where literally, you know, we could breed these birds and put them in Wisconsin, but they will, you know, um, you know, they may freeze to death, <laughs> or if we don't actually lead them behind these uh, planes um, and 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 get them to Florida.
0: I mean, it's. It's a particular case, and it's an extreme case, but it is a model for many of these wild populations that we have to kind of prod and bully and cajole into surviving, you know? Um, Absolutely. I mean, from, from, you know, species that we have to, that we tell ourselves we have to call to, to species that we have to, guiding their migrations to species that we've got a sort of shock to keep them in places where, where they're going to be safe. There is a culture in the con- in, among conservationists of bullying animals into being themselves. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty fine line between, between conservation there and domestication.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think that's exactly right. Is that, is that when you are in control of so much, Um, And and not just doing things purposefully, but then realizing that when you don't do things purposefully, there are consequences that... Are unanticipated and that complicated, So then you have to step back. You know, I mean, describe something called the otter free zone, right. which was like you know this this uh, scheme in the, in the um, started in the eighties in Southern California where they, we were reintroducing otters and then we had problems because uh, you know fishermen didn't want them around and there was uh, offshore oil exploration going on. So the, the the government actually said, okay, we'll set up an otter free zone, and if otters go into this particular area of the ocean, which I think was like the size of Texas, you know, we will get them out and move them, you know, and so and so. Maybe basically, once you set these things in motion, if, if you've set them in motion, in a way, you have to take responsibility for them as well, um, you know, once they're in motion. And so I think that the whooping crane thing, you know, it definitely looks ridiculous, but only because of the airplanes and the costumes. In terms of the intensity of the effort, um, you know, it's 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 really representative, I think, of a, of a whole wave of, of conservation work that's going on right now.
0: Yeah, and it, and it sort of brings into relief what, I mean, just coming back to Coming back around to the notion of wildness, it it brings into relief a kind of commodity that is wildness, a, a thing that we are trading in and building whole industries into um, and investing or doing our best to invest animals with or, um, so that, that we can know that it exists out there.
1: Yeah, yep, it's very much um I mean I think that's that you know, people talk about utilitarian view, views of wildlife and you, tell, you know, we, we want to preserve elk so that we can hunt them or things like that. And then the, the opposite of that is a kind of more aesthetic um or moral or you know, there's these different categories that Stephen Keller developed. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I I would actually argue that in some way all values are utilitarian because we we want to use the, the wild animals as to to know that they're there, that that gives us a, a pleasure. It's still to to satisfy a human desire. Um, you know, we may not be directly interacting with it in the way that we're shooting it or that we we actually use it, but we do use it in a in a kind of a psychic uh, way. You know, there, sometimes we want we want a species uh, to still be on a particular piece of land because we just want to not feel like we drove it extinct. Um, and and that basically, you know, I, I take the view that these are all all of these recoveries in some ways are are designed to serve human values and, and it's just a matter of parsing out how you feel about those different values and which ones you feel like are more important.
0: Is there something that we're protecting ourselves from by protecting wildness out there? Is there something that about wildness that we feel like we need we need around?
1: Well, I think there's definitely a longing. I mean, you see throughout history, you know, people didn't talk about animals this way a hundred years ago. You know, no one no one celebrated well no a hundred years ago, maybe not a hundred and fifty years ago, you know. Um, it wasn't until about the turn of the uh, you know, from in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds that people started to romanticize um animals in, in a way where, you know, you could look at a Think about a bear and think about it as being this pure, kind of competent thing that was doing its thing in the woods and, you know, didn't that make us feel good about the richness of planet Earth? You know, before that it was just, it was like this monster that wanted to eat your chickens. Mm Um, you know, it was more like the way we would see rats, um, than, than the way we see it, we see a bear now. Um, so, so I think that, you know, given the, the kind of lives we lead, I think it's, it's really, it's natural that we would, we would want to know that there was something else out there. There, we wanted, there's something that was more from where we came from than, than maybe where we're heading.
0: Right. Exactly. It's like when, when you, when you live near a tiger and the, that tiger is, is stalking you and, uh, um, you know. Putting everything that you have, life and property, at risk, uh, you're probably not not so likely to um, to appreciate the tiger being there. Um, but when you're far away, you want to know it's there.
1: Yeah, and I and I don't think that's um, you know I don't think that undermines the cause of conservation at all. You know, I, I think it's like the the kind of romance of animals and their imaginative value is is maybe the, in some ways the most important um, purpose a lot of species are. Are serving right now, um, and I and I, I do wish there was a way for conservationists to talk about that more without feeling like they were setting themselves up for for getting attacked. I mean, in the same way that you know we talk about art or you know historic preservation or you know all of these things that we we don't feel the need to justify. Um, you know by, by some empirical scientific value um, there's just a consensus that um, emotionally or imaginatively these are important parts um, you know important facets of the planet um, i mean I, I understand it's hard to maybe go before a congressional committee and get the kind of funding you need um, if that's your argument but but i do I do really hope that that conservationists can figure out a, a more compelling way to talk about those values because I think ultimately those are the things that really resonate with people more than you know um, you know apex predators restoring or in grassland or whatever it is you know
0: John muallam it is always an education to talk with you oh thanks man you too <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much <laughs> talk to you soon okay bye Jason bye thanks a lot for listening everybody the theme music for today's show was written and recorded by the band Black Prairie it's from their musical accompaniment to John's book A record called Wild Ones, a musical score for the things that you might see in your head when you reflect on certain characters and incidents that you read about in the book. It can be found at blog.blackprairie.com. And please, if you haven't already, go out and read John's book, Wild Ones. I promise we left the best parts for you.